Well, good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn to Colossians uh, chapter 1. Uh, last week we looked at one of the, the most Christ-centered passages in, in all of Scripture. And, and I know that, that all Scripture points to Jesus, but verses 15 through 20 of Colossians chapter 1 really point to Jesus. In these verses, the Apostle Paul leans into the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus with precision and, and excellence. And, and where we pick up today, after vividly and, and comprehensively describing Jesus as the image of the invisible God and the creator of all things and the sustainer of the universe and the head of the church and the peacemaker between God and, and mankind, Paul shifts his focus from Christ to the recipients of the letter. We'll see in a few moments that verse 21 begins with, and you. As we've discussed, the original audience was a church plant in the thriving and growing first century city of Colossae, who was reeling from the introduction of an unnamed heresy. And so after setting their feet back on the gospel in these first 20 verses of chapter 1, after reacquainting them with the person and work of, of Jesus Christ, Paul invites them to participate in an exercise of self-evaluation. He reminds them that every person under heaven is either with Christ or against Christ. That you can't ride the fence. You can't hang on the sideline. You can't Avoid the pressing reality. Either you are with Christ or you're against Christ. Or as, as Paul puts it in these verses, either you are alienated from God or you are reconciled to God. Here's how Paul explains it starting in verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. As I've mentioned in the past, when you're studying scripture, you must ask yourself from time to time, is this passage descriptive or prescriptive? In other words, is the author addressing a specific group in a specific place at a specific time, or is the author offering universal guidance for all believers in Jesus Christ? Now, if we aren't careful, we can incorrectly classify 21 through 23 as descriptive and, and sort of breeze past this passage. That's almost what I did. My original plan was to kind of tack this on to, to last week's uh, sermon. And so you can look at these verses and say, oh, you know, Paul's clearly talking to the Colossians here. I mean, this letter is addressed to them. And, and when he mentions being alienated from God and being hostile in mind and being evil in, in actions. You know, he, he's definitely talking about them. I mean, he isn't talking about me. You know, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't sound like me. You know, there's certain places where we love to see ourselves in Scripture. There are other places where we don't like it 
as much. But when Paul says, and you, he's talking to you, he's talking to me, he's talking to everyone under the sound of my voice. Here's the first point this morning. Alienation is your fundamental problem. Alienation is your your fundamental problem. When Paul says, and you, he's talking directly to you. It's personal. It's universal too, but it's, it's personal. You may bristle a little bit. You may, you may squirm in your pew, but you must understand the bad news before you can fully embrace the good news. That's something that Paul, Paul loves to take you on that journey where he shows you the bad news, then he gets around to the good news. And, and that's, that's the flow that we see here. And, and the bad news is that your starting point in life is a total and complete separation from a holy God. That, that, that's the starting line where, where we all begin. And, and this is the flow that we see in verse 21, that you were alienated from God, which means that you, you were separated from God. You were apart from God. It means you were searching for satisfaction somewhere else in creation. You were searching for satisfaction from creation instead of the Creator. You were reasoning... You were reasoning, and it sounds kind of crazy when we put it this way, but you were reasoning that if I could have more of what I already have, then I will be happy. I mean, that sounds so silly, but we, we all play the game. We're all familiar with the game. You know, I have the house, but if I had a bigger house, I have the job, but if I had a better job, I have a partner, but if I had a a new partner, you know, then I would be content, then I would have peace, then I would find fulfillment. But this is a fool's errand. Okay, you can't get something out of creation that creation was not designed to supply for you. If the preceding verses from last week make anything clear, it's this, it's that everything in the universe exists for the sole purpose of highlighting the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus Christ, that every good thing in creation points to an infinitely better creator. But sometimes... You forego the, the three-course meal prepared for you at God's table and you settle for shame-eating a McDonald's Happy Meal in your car. You don't even get dessert because their ice cream machine's always broken. And so if you make food or drink or work or money or success or, or family your God, you're going to run into problems. Because those things can't fulfill you. Those things can't satisfy you. Those things can't give you everything that, that God can give you. And as your world unravels, you become hostile in mind. And so the way this, this, this works out is that when you consider your shortcomings, when your life isn't going according to your plans, when you're walking through a difficult season, you're going to face this temptation to shift the blame somewhere else where you say it's, it's, it's their fault. You know, you blame it on the other people in your life or you blame it on the circumstances of your life. And by the way, I want you to see and I want you to understand that that tendency is not new. And that tendency is not exclusive. That tendency goes all the way back to the fall. 
In Genesis 3, when God asks Adam, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? What does Adam say? He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. You see, it's not my fault, God. It's my circumstances. It's the situation that you created. It's, it's the marriage that you established. I mean, blame my wife. She gave me the apple. In the aftermath of the first sin, we find the first man desperate to shift the blame elsewhere, but it still fell squarely on his shoulders. He sinned against God. And so the words, you were alienated, are are personal, and they should drive us to, to wrestle with our own spiritual condition, but, but you should read verse 21 and, 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 and be moved to a posture of gratitude or a posture of fear. Like it's personal, but it's universal too. Because as Romans tells us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When Adam and Eve fell short of God's standard, their decision had these rippling effects throughout human history. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so we were born into death through sin because of the actions of Adam and Eve. If Satan convinced Eve that God was holding back, he started poking and, and prodding and and he asked, did God really say? And then he said, you know, surely you won't die. And because Adam and Eve were alienated from God, they were just away from God for those moments. Because Satan had created hostility and, and planted these seeds in their minds, they sinned against God. Satan convinced Eve to choose her way over God's way. And she took a bite of the apple and Adam took a bite of the apple and suddenly their perfect world was turned upside down. You know, God had designed the Garden of Eden to be this place absent of shame and fear and hiding and secrets. It's supposed to be this place of perfect union between the Creator and His creation. But Adam and Eve began this path of outright rebellion against God. And so for the first time, they felt every feeling that we know all too well. Guilt, regret, panic, disbelief, nervousness, shame, heartache. All of these new emotions were just flooding into their veins like ice water. On, on their account, sin and death entered the world because of their transgression. We were born into a sinful generation. We were born apart from God. We were born rebels. We were born alienated. And this is sometimes tough for us to understand. And, and you may want to push back here. You may be thinking, well, that doesn't seem fair? I mean, how can we be held responsible for something that, that we had no part in? And it's a tough question. It does seem unfair when we consider the far-reaching consequences of one decision. I mean, after all, this, this one choice, their one choice, caused death to pass upon all. Because of their choice, just chaos came to all. 
And if you want to tease this out a little bit, you can, you can trace every disease, every natural disaster, every diagnosis of terminal illness, every divorce, every abuse, every murder, every rape, every war, back to this moment, every conflict, every problem, every issue goes back to the fall. And so when you think about it that way, when you consider these sprawling ramifications, you may want to ask, how is this fair? Well, in calling Adam our representative, God is essentially saying that what Adam chose is what each one of us would have chosen in the same situation. See, Adam knew God's choice would have been, uh, God knew Adam's choice, excuse me, would have been my choice. He knew that Adam's choice would have been your choice. And you can still try to argue, you know, Pastor, I would have never eaten from that tree. I mean, they only had one rule, and I don't even like apples, but you don't really have an argument. Listen, for the last 18 months or so, I've I've made an intentional effort to, to cut back on the amount of sugar in my diet. And, and I've been I've been somewhat successful with it because I've I've purged everything delicious from my pantry and my freezer. I've been using this out of sight, out of mind diet strategy and, and it's it's worked pretty well, but over the last eighteen months I haven't developed a superior willpower over sugar. I'm still weak. A few weeks ago, I was sitting in the living room working on my laptop and I overheard Lacey tell the girls, hey, when you finish your lunch, you can have a few of the Skittles that are in the candy bowl. And when she said those words, my stomach dropped because I knew that she was writing a check that the candy bowl couldn't cash because I had already tasted the rainbow the night before. And so here's the point. If I can't keep candy in my house, if I can't keep ice cream in my house, if I can't resist Reese Cups and Rocky Road ice cream, what hope would I have of resisting a tree which promised God's power and God's knowledge? And so we don't have a case because we constantly adopt Adam's line of thinking, either directly or indirectly, we say to ourselves, I know better than God. We say to ourselves, I'd rather go my way than God's way. We say to ourselves, I know what I should do, but I'm not going to do it. And so we weren't physically present in the garden of with Adam, but we have ratified Adam's decision over and over in our lives. So that's, that's the bad news. Now, before we move to verse 22 and talk about the good news and reconciliation with God, let, let's address one other aspect of, of alienation with God. I mean, obviously, Paul writes, you were alienated. And he, he's addressing fellow believers, and he's reminding them of their former state. And he's just saying, you know, don't remember this. Don't forget that this is where you were back then. And, and praise God, this is where you are now. But you may have noticed that our first point in the outline is not alienation was your fundamental problem. It's that alienation is your fundamental problem. 
And I went back and forth on this, but ultimately I decided to keep it in the present tense for a couple reasons. One, I don't know that every person under the sound of my voice is a Christ follower. And don't take offense to that. So over the last two years, I've gotten to know most of you a little bit. I've gotten to know some of you really well, but I'm not... I'm not God, and, and, and since I'm not God, until Christ returns or calls me home, my responsibility and my conviction is, is preaching the full counsel of God, which involves sharing the devastating bad news and the staggering good news. And so if you're in this room and, and you've never trusted in Christ, and if you've been in and out of church, or if you're not 100% certain about your eternal standing before God, I don't want to stand before you and cultivate this false sense of security for you. Because this is the reality. Alienation from God is the starting point for all. But it will be the ending point for some. Some will, will just remain there. And I, and I can assure you, I don't enjoy talking about hell. I don't get jollies from it. But I can't sweep it under the rug either. I can't push it aside. I can't ignore it because Christ believed in it. Christ talked about it all the time in the Gospels. See, Paul starts with the bad news in verse 21 because for us to fully understand the Gospel, for us to place any value in it, we have to understand what God saved us from. So if you're not a believer, we're glad you're here, but we want to show you what God's trying to save you from. And the second reason for keeping it in the present tense is this, for Christ followers, short seasons of, of temporary alienation can still plague us. Now to be clear, I'm not saying that you can lose your salvation and return to your previous reality, but I am saying you can go through seasons of spiritual dryness where you feel out of place among God's people, where you feel like your prayers are hitting the ceiling and falling back on the floor of your bedroom, where you feel as though God is a million miles away and is generally unconcerned about any of your problems. And this spiritual dryness can create alienation from God, which breeds hostile thoughts, which breeds and leads to evil actions. And so I want you to realize, too, that if you're in Christ, you haven't graduated from the problems of verse 21. You haven't graduated from this vicious loop of alienation, hostility, and evil. Sanctification is a process. Following Jesus is two steps forward and one step Back, but I want you to see that if we can understand the pattern, we can win more battles than we lose. Yeah, because often we just attempt to manage the evil actions in our lives without evaluating how we reach the evil action. Let me give you an illustration for this. Let, let's say that a wife catches her husband looking at pornography and she's deeply hurt. She's incredibly upset. And so he commits to making a change. And so he, 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 
goes right at the sin. He puts safeguards on his phone. He sets up an accountability partner. He cancels a few streaming services, and he achieves a temporary short-lived victory. And then three months later, he's back in that familiar snare, and he can't understand why. Well, the reason that he's back there is because he didn't deal with the root of the issue. Because when he views pornography, he's effectively saying in that fleeting moment that my computer screen is providing something for me that my wife cannot or will not provide. And so on some level, that's hostility towards his bride, and that's hostility towards God. That's saying, God, my wife is a good gift, and I love her, but I just need a little bit more than she's giving me. And then by this point, he's, he's running down the path to alienation. So can you see how... Sin management is working backwards. When you're struggling with habitual sin, you must go to the start. You must go to the root. You must regain peace with God first, then make peace with others who you may have hurt along the way. Then you can fight more effectively against your sin. And so whether you're a Christ follower or not, alienation from God is your, your fundamental problem. but it won't be forever. Second point, reconciliation with God is Christ's sufficient solution. In verse 18, uh, Paul pointed to the resurrected Christ. Now in verse 22, he focuses on the crucified Christ. He writes that Christ has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Notice how Paul emphasizes Christ's physical body. He says, if you're in Christ, you are reconciled in his body by his death. And this is a, a weird description of a glorious truth. As one commentator says, this is what really happened in time and space. Christ didn't pretend to die. His heart really stopped beating at a moment in history. His sacrifice was real, and just as a representative sacrifice, one death for another, was the requirement for Jews to approach God in the temple, so now Christ's death breaks open a way back to God for the whole of humanity. Recently, I heard a story about a pastor who was cornered by an angry man who had been visiting his church, and the man said to him, I really don't like the way that you keep talking about the cross so much. And in my view, it just turn, it turns people off. It'd be far better and far more effective to preach Christ's example of love instead. And after listening carefully and respectfully, the pastor responded, fair enough. So if I present him that way, would you be willing to follow him? And the man said, yes, I certainly would. And the pastor said, okay, in that case, let's, let's take the first step today. Jesus lived a perfect life. Can you make the same claim? And the man was taken aback. And he said, of course not. Right. 
So your greatest need is not for a teacher. It's for a savior. Listen, if you're a Christ follower and verse 22 doesn't excite you, then you need to check your pulse. So on the cross, he became our sin. He lived a perfect life which we couldn't live and he died a death which we deserve. On the cross, he was punished like he was the one who was alienated from God, like he was the one who was hostile towards God, like he was the one who was committing evil acts against God. And we say all the time that we can summarize the gospel in four words, Christ in your place. And because Christ went in your place. Look at this, this beautiful shift that occurs from 21 to 22. Once you were alienated, once you were hostile, once you were evil, but now you are holy. Now you are blameless. Now you are above reproach. And let me just quickly define these terms a little bit. Holy means set apart. When the Apostle Peter realized he was standing in the presence of holiness in Luke chapter 5, he said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Holiness is being set apart for God because we are set apart like God. It proves our places with Him and not the world. Blameless means without blemish. This reminds us of the old covenant, these animal sacrifices that were required to be presented as, as pure the purity of the animal covered the impurity of the sinner. And when God died on the cross, his, when Christ died on the cross, his perfection covered our imperfection. And above reproach means free from accusation. In the courtroom of heaven, each one of us is ragged up quite the rap sheet. You know, if, if God is tracking every single one of our sins and so you see pages and pages and pages of you know, impure thoughts and, and angry words and, and all these mistakes that we've made. Our transgressions just going on page after page after page, but then Christ intervened and our sins were erased. Paul describes the great exchange in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says he made him who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So alienation from God is your fundamental problem. Reconciliation with God is Christ's sufficient solution. And finally, salvation from God requires your active response. Let's read verse 23 Again, if indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven, and, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now the first word of verse 23 is a source of confusion for many Christians. At, at first glance, that this passage as a whole seems to have a a strange flow to it. Verse 21 says you are separated from God. Verse 22 says you're redeemed through Christ. And then verse 23 appears to be saying, if you stay on track, if you continue, if you're stable, if you're steadfast, if you don't shift from the hope of the gospel, then 
you will hold on to your salvation. And we'll clarify this a little bit before we do. I just want to go over a couple common errors here. Some read verse 23 and say, okay, this is confirmation that you can lose your salvation. You know, Paul is writing to the Colossians and they were apart from God and he says they're reconciled with God and now he's saying they'll remain with God as long as they keep up their end of the bargain. But in the Gospel of John, Christ says all the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And then others read verse 23 and say, this isn't about losing your salvation. This is, is a warning uh, for believers about the dangers of backsliding. Now, this is a parent making a ridiculous threat to one of their children just to kind of get them to shape up. You know, a threat that, that nobody's going to follow through on. It's like saying, hey, if you don't quiet down in the back seat, you're walking the rest of the way home. But mom, we, we just left the beach five minutes ago. So you make that threat. You, you aren't planning to follow through. You aren't going to make your six-year-old walk hundreds of miles. And so the thought is that Paul's using this parental formula. He's, he's passing out this, this threat. Hey, guys, shape up. Get it together. Let's get back on track. But this view has problems, too. For one, many of us know someone who's completely turned away from Jesus. One minute they're a, a faithful deacon or a church member of the county seat Baptist church, and the next minute they're living a totally different life. If you've been around the church for a long time, you've watched some come and go. And when they go, that they don't always go to another church. Sometimes they just stop going to church altogether. And so ultimately, verse 23 is not a confirmation of losing your salvation. And it's not a warning about backsliding. More than anything, verse 23 is just reality. In Mark 4, uh, Jesus shares the parable of the sower. He tells the crowd, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them, and other seeds fell on the rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, and since there was no depth of soil, when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. In this parable, Christ mentions four possible results for those who hear the gospel. And the first three are negative outcomes. The first group was devoured by birds. The second group sprouted up briefly but had no depths of soil and withered away. And the third group fell among thorns and it grew a little bit, but as the thorns grew larger, the small plants were choked out and they yielded no grain. And I share that with you to, to show you that that second and, and third group who ultimately were unbelievers in the end, they grew for a season. 
They, they were engaged for a season. They were committed for a season, but eventually their love for creation overcame their love for the Creator. They didn't lose their salvation because you can't lose something that you never had. Salvation is a free gift from God. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But salvation requires an active, continued response. When we continue in faith, when we are stable and steadfast, when we maintain hope in the gospel, we are only showing our fruit that is growing from Christ's root. And what I mean is this, that we, we grow in deeper appreciation for Christ's work and our justification. We will engage more actively, more eagerly in our sanctification. You know, the most famous verse in Scripture might be John 3.16, but that next verse is pretty good too. Verse 17 says, For God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved him. See, God's ultimate purpose since the beginning has been reconciliation through His Son. It was always the plan. When Adam and Eve broke His one command in the first 15 minutes, He wasn't surprised. He didn't go to plan B. He didn't have to get into the war room with the Son and the Spirit and figure out another way. No, He told them in Genesis 3.15, You deserve judgment, but I'm going to provide a route for you to escape judgment. And we see this carried out through the rest of the Old Testament when He called Abraham out of paganism. He made him the father of a great nation. He promised that his ancestors would bless the entire world. He called Moses out of the wilderness and he sent him to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with the most powerful ruler in the world and demand, let my people go. He called the prophets to call Israel back when they turned away from him. But they continued over and over again in disobedience. They continued to fall short of his standard and God sent his son anyway. And when he came, there was curiosity. There was intrigue. But they were so opposed to his message in the end that they murdered him on a cross. You know, and at any point in all of this, God would have been completely justified in cutting his losses. He would have been warranted in giving up, but he didn't. He, he couldn't. Instead, he said, if you will receive my love for you, if you will trust in the work of my son, if you will turn your eyes to him, if you will follow him, I will wipe your slate clean. I will blot out your transgressions. I will eradicate your sin. I will save you. But again, Verse 17 of John 3, just like verse 23 of, of, of Colossians 1, it is conditional. It says, so Jesus came so we might be saved through him. Salvation is conditional. It requires a response. It needs an RSVP. God clears a path. God makes a way, but we must walk in repentance and faith. We must repent of our sin and believe in Jesus. And I know that repentance can be a sticking point. 
that it's hard to bring yourself to repent. It's hard to humble yourself before Christ. It's hard to see yourself as a wretched sinner in the presence of a holy God, but you have to start with your own depravity. You must understand the bad news before you can fully appreciate the good news. When you have coped with your sin, when you've come to terms with your alienation, you ask God for forgiveness in Christ. You ask for the cross to cover your sins. You ask that He would make you holy, blameless, and above reproach, and then you trust Jesus as your Savior and Lord. It's that simple. Don't allow the if in verse 23 to throw you for a loop. Your part in the salvation process is simple. You believe whoever believes in him has eternal life whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life whoever believes in him is not condemned believe in Christ Jesus believe in the scriptures believe in the gospel believe in God's redemptive plan believe in the sufficiency of the cross believe in the power of the resurrection believe in the second coming believe in the son because he is your only hope for salvation. Believe. Let's pray. Father, just thank you for your word. I thank you for this wonderful book that Paul wrote 2,000 years ago. Now, Father, I thank you especially for these three verses and, and just the, the reality that they bring to the forefront for us. That anyone and everyone under heaven is either currently living alienated from you or reconciled to you. And so, Father, for those who are alienated, Father, I pray that, that, that the good news, the gospel, soaked into their hearts and minds today. Father, I pray that you would extend your hand to them. Father, I pray that you would draw them, draw them in. Help them see that nothing in creation can compare to the Creator. Father, for those who have been reconciled, pray that these words offer them assurance of their salvation, security in the gospel, hope in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, excitement for the second coming. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We pray these things in his name. Amen.